Welcome to SCD Church's podcast. You can always join us for our live services Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings out at our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our services live online at seacoastchrist.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages. Thanks so much for listening. And uh, glad you're here. And uh, we're starting a new series uh, called Ordering Your House or Getting Your House in Order. And uh, we just kind of want to kind of lay some groundwork that this year we're kind of free to run and become who God wants us to be and impact the world the way we believe that God's calling us to. So, uh, yeah. So I got back from Christmas. I uh, took a few days off after Christmas, went away, immediately got sick, spent 10 days in bed with flu. Anyway, it was great. It was wonderful. And, uh, and it was all of you people on Christmas Eve that insisted on shaking my hand after you'd been sneezing. And I just blame it. Or it could be those three grandkids that are in my house all the time. Either way, whatever happened. But so I came home and, uh, and I, I went in the house and we left uh, I, I, just right after Christmas. So um, I opened my garage door. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, there, it's, it's in complete. Now, I have a very high tolerance for clutter. Some might say I'm messy. My wife would be one of those people and say I'm extremely messy. This was too much even for me. But here's how bad it is. Okay, I have an old truck in my garage. There's a table on top of the truck. <laughs> there are some pieces of furniture. I don't know where they came from. I didn't put them there. There are boxes left over from wrapping it. There, here's how bad it is. You can't get from front to back or from side to side without going outside. It's bad. It's bad. Uh, so I got some work ahead of me. Here's the problem. Is that garage is how I think the world may be right now. I've had a lot of time as I'm sick in bed, almost dying. Okay, my wife accused me of saying that, that, that I thought I was, but I wasn't really. But I, I have a lot of time to look at the screen, the bigger screen and the, the screen, smaller screen, and see a lot of what's happening in the world. And uh, it's a mess. Like my garage, it is chaos. I just think it's chaos in the world right now. I just think on so many fronts, things are so crazy. It's just chaos. And so the reason we're doing this series is the following statement. Uh, uh, to the degree our world is disordered, we live in chaos. Now, to the, to the degree we don't have things where they need to be, not just in my garage, but in our lives, and our world, inner turmoil reigns. Does that make sense? Disorder goes up, chaos goes up. And so we want to help get things ordered. And, uh, and in order, help us uh, depend on God to get things in order. So that's part of what we're going to talk about. Now, it, it, keep that in mind. At the same time, it was a little shocking for me because I have practiced for a long time something I call in, intentional naivete, in which I don't really want to know how depraved the world is. I mean, I really, they, some of you guys watch, they're called gossip shows, where you want to know how depraved people are. Like, oh, she broke with him because this happened. You kind of eat that. I don't. It depresses me. I don't want to watch that. I'm not saying it's a good way to live. I'm just saying I can't handle all the bad things in the world. But there are times when I can't ignore them either. I can't avoid them. I can't put my head in the sand and miss them. And 10 days in bed with nothing to do but look at stuff, man, the world is a messed up place. It is a messed up place. How did we get here? So I want to look at something today that not only maybe helps us think about how we got here, I may confront you with where we actually are, and you'll maybe disagree with me, but that's okay. Uh, but I want to look at what Paul says that the solution is. And so in the, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, I want to look at that today. I'm going to, I'm going to start in verse 17 if you have a Bible, uh, or if you'd like to follow along on a Bible app. Otherwise, they'll be up here. But before I get to verse 17, which is the talk I want to give, I want to go back to verse 1 
uh, through 3, in the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians. And there's one particular phrase I really want you to hear. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live, and here it is, a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now, what is that? That sounds like that's, you know, someone who's a professional Christian or something, right? So here's what it is. The goal for this year, the thing that Paul is trying to get them to understand, is that you have this life, this life that God intends you to live. It is a life about higher things, about more noble things, about godly things, about spiritual things. It is this life to which you were called. But understand the word calling. Calling is not just, yo, hey, come do this with me. It's Jesus who said, yo, hey, come do this with me, and then died on a cross so that we could. So there is a weight to this thing. When he says the calling, it's not like, oh, it's an option. You can go here, go there. It's not that kind. It's not like an invitation to dinner. It's about your entire life being reconciled to God, your creator, paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ. That not only changes your life, it changes your character, it changes your future, it changes your forever. That is the calling. It is this powerful thing to aspire to, to live according to the calling. Now, if we were to be really honest, and we're not going to be because that would be really painful, but if we were to be really honest and we evaluated 2022, how much of our life, how much of 2022 was lived according to worthy of the calling? That's a pretty uncomfortable question for me because there were so many times I wasn't living up to what I knew God wanted for me. There's so many attitudes. I just decided I'd stay on the couch instead of get involved. So many attitudes that there's, so there's this confrontation. Here's the ideal. Here's the opportunity. And it's not a guilt thing. It's look what God wants to do with your life. He goes on and he says the following, be completely humble. And by the way, today I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to be, I'm going to try to be humble. And, uh, and, uh, I want to ask you to do the same because I think what we need to hear today is going to require some humility and not defensiveness. Because if we want this, this life worthy of the calling, we need to hear the truth about ourselves, about the world, about what could be, what might be, what is. Um, so it goes on, be humble and gentle. Gentle is not wimpy. It is strong. It is humble enough to stand in strength, to deal with what you need to deal with in God's power. It has nothing to do with being weak. It goes on, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then the passages from there, verse 4 to 17 or 16, are actually kind of a parenthetical teaching there. And he picks up again in verse 17 with what I just read in verse 3. So, because of that first thing, life worthy of the calling, humble, gentle. Because of that, so I tell you this. Because that's the ideal. That's where we need to be. That's the kind of life we need to aspire to, ask God to bring us to. Then, because of that, listen to this. And he says this. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do. Oh, here we got a little racial thing going right off the bat here. Right? Oh, stupid Gentiles. Because he's a Jew, right? So he's like, no, no, no. Here's the deal. Paul wrote to two different groups. One were Jews who had come to believe in Jesus. The others were Gentiles, non-Jews, who had come to believe in Jesus. And the temptations for each of those groups to revert back, to deconvert from Christianity back to where they came from was significant. So if he was talking to a Jewish crowd, he'd say, don't go back to legalism and trying to earn your own way to heaven. Right? Because that's kind of what the Judaism thing was about. And, he, and to the Gentiles, don't go back to paganism. 
You Gentiles, the thing that tempts you is to go back to your old ways of paganism, of, of worshiping uh, whatever made you feel good. And so that's the group he's addressing here in this passage. And that's the group that most of us belong to, uh, Gentiles. So he says this, no longer live as the Gentiles, which you are a Gentile and you used to live this way, um, do. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Well, that's nice. You sure it's not a racial thing or ethnic thing? He's saying, but remember, he's talking to people who he's reminding them, this is what your life used to be like. Now, I want to point out something on that because we're going to do more of this passage, but I want to start with that section. He's saying, this is what, how you used to be. And he's saying in harsh terms, and he wants to clarify um, some things. So let me start with something I need to clarify. I think there, there are a couple of ways to look at the world. There's this word in, in, in the Greek that it, um, it comes from the idea of a sculptor and I've shared this with you before. A sculptor would make a sculpture, and if he missed something or put a ding in it or something like that, he would just cover it over with wax. And so a wise consumer would take that, that sculpture, put it out in the sun, and say, I'll be back in four hours. And when you come back, the wax has melted, and you can see the imperfections and the blemishes there, right? And so there are two ways to look at the world. One is that the, um, and this is kind of the way I look at it, the world humans are not at the core of who we are good. Some people think that if you just look at humans, you got to look past their mistakes, the environment they're raised in, and a few other things, and you will see a good person in there. No, you might see some good intentions, but I don't think you'll see a good person. I think the more it melts away, the more selfishness you discover. I think the Bible describes that at the core of who we are, we are not just someone who's made some mistakes or had a bad environment we grew up in. We are sinners. We are broken And the more that's melted away of the nice little polish we have on ourselves, the more we see how selfish we really are. Even in our own marriages, our own parenting, we are messed up. There is something wrong at the core of who we are, and it needs fixed, and it only can be fixed by a Savior. That's how I look at the world, and I think that's how the Bible looks at the world. I think what has happened to me recently is I've begun to look at the world, and a little bit more of the wax is getting stripped off. The stuff that looked like it was, oh, it's all good. They're all fine. It's not. It's all just seeking power, seeking to get ahead somehow, money, whatever. I see, I am seeing the world, and maybe I'm just an old curmudgeon, don't walk on my lawn. Um, but I am just seeing, as the, I think in the time we live in, a lot of the wax is getting stripped away, and we're seeing what people are really about. And by the way, we can see some things about ourselves if we'll look. And so, so having said that, let, let's talk about this passage because he's stripping away the wax. He doesn't want them to shine on who they used to be and the kind of life and the kind of thing. That they, by the way, the Bible says that without a vision, the people perish. What that means is without a fresh glimpse or a fresh connection, a fresh uh, realization of God's involvement, the people perish. Perish doesn't mean die. In this case, it means run unrestrained. Without knowing who God is, people just go wild. Our society has decided to exclude God. By the way, it hasn't completely succeeded yet because when a young man falls on a football field, what word gets spoken more than any other word by every single person just about? The word prayer. Because we haven't excluded God, we've just tried. God is still God. 
And there's a whole lot of us who know he's there, whether consciously or subconsciously. But to the degree we've excluded God, we just run wild because it's up to us then. There's no restrictions. There's no guidelines. It's just whatever we feel is right, whatever we feel is good. And unfortunately, our, our barometers of what is good and right is just shot as a race, right? And so he is saying, I want you to see un, un, uh, smoothed out. Uh, I want you to see what your life was really like. And so he says, here's what it is for the Gentiles. So let's go through this and uh, I'm going to break it down. And I want you to stick with me because I, I, you're going you're gonna to learn something. You may not like it, but you'll learn it. Uh, I think you'll like it. So here's what he says. So I tell you this, and insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles, as you used to do, okay? In the, and let's just break this up. Futility of their thinking, they are, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. There's a whole lot of words there, a whole lot of description. Let me give you the first three. The first three are futility of thinking, darkened understanding, and ignorance. They're actually in reverse order. They're actually built on, built on each other. First comes ignorance, then comes darkened understanding, then comes futility of thinking. So let me explain how this works. Ignorance. We're all ignorant when we're born. We're born ignorant, right? You don't know how to walk, you don't know how to crawl, you don't know how to speak. You've got to learn all that kind of stuff, right? Well, we're also spiritually ignorant. Now, we, we have a fallen nature, according to Scripture, uh, but we're ignorant. But here's what happens. Ignorance is both inborn and chosen. And here how it is. You don't know much about God. But as you move through your life, you have opportunities to learn about God. You have opportunities to receive some light of God, whether it's even, even you say, well, I never heard the gospel. Well, even if there was a sense that you had a conscience and somehow through nature realized there must be somebody bigger, you either say yes to learning about that thing or you say no and remain in ignorance. And so as the first step to, to being the opposite of this, living worthy of the calling, is to live this other kind of life. And the first step is to choose a chosen ignorance about God. And so that's the first kind of the beginning of it. I don't want to know about God. I don't want there to be a God. Cody says something sometimes when he talks about apologetics. He says, before you believe in God, you've got to want there to be a God. It's not that the wanting there be to God causes God to be. God is. You're just either open to learning or you want to live in ignorance about God, right? And so the beginning thing is I choose ignorance about God, which then moves to the next one that we talk about here. And it talks about a darkened understanding. And this is that... Everything I see, so Ecclesiastes is a very depressing book. The reason is because it increasingly excludes God from the equation of human life. And so in my chosen ignorance, I now can no longer include God, even his common grace, in my equation of life. So therefore, everything I look at has to be figured out and achieved and worked out under the sun, in Ecclesiastes' words. You follow me? So now, if there's no possibility of God, so imagine that night when the kid, uh, the, the young man the other day fell, a heart attack on the field. They turn to God because that's the logical place to turn. Imagine that no one, no one, truly no one, believed in God. What would they say to each other? Send out good thoughts to the universe, which is still a belief in God, by the way. In that case, the universe is God. The only thing to say to each other, yeah, that's really sad. We're not sure if there's hope. We're not sure if there's a good outcome possible. It's just really sad, which is what life is if you exclude God from the equation of your life. It's just really sad. It is, a, it is a tragedy. Therefore, it leaves you to what's left, which is get as much as you can while you can, which is what leads to the taking advantage of each other and a bunch of the debauchery that's talked about here, and we'll get to it. Ignorance, built on that, is a darkened understanding. If there's no God, there's no light, there's no hope, there's no way to move forward. Even, even 
Cody talks about this a lot too, but even non, even atheists have some light they believe is theirs, but it comes from Christian teaching. So even the remnants of Christian teaching and the existence of God bring some hope. But if there is no existence of God, no possibility of God in the equation, there is no hope and futility of thinking. <laughs> Literal translation of this, this phrase, futility in their thinking or futility, futility of thinking is good for nothing notions, which leads to irresponsible behavior. That kind of sounds like the world I'm living in. And then it goes on. So if in our mind we exclude the possibility of God, we choose ignorance about God, we, uh, uh, we are separated from the life of God, and we, uh, we have this, this, this way of thinking, and then it begins to affect our heart. And so what does it say next? It says, in them due to the hardening of their hearts. If I've chosen that there is no God, I've chosen to believe that, there's no equation in which God intervenes. And so in which, by the way, which in the end, there could be no, not only no hope, but no justice, true justice. Uh, I worked with a 12-year-old kid when I was in college. I was kind of his, his uh, he was living in a, a group home and, uh, and, and uh, he'd been through many foster homes. And so I'd go in one week, once a week and hang out with him. And uh, this kid was sharp, good-looking kid. Everybody liked him. He was sharp, he was smooth, he was slick, and he had no heart. He had, been, he had been wounded so many times. I mean, he could sell. He's either going to be a CEO or an inmate or both. He was smart. He could sell. He could shine you on. But there was no heart. What he would never have was a marriage or a family. Because of the woundedness in his life, his heart had gotten so hard to protect itself. It just it did this. And your only option, if there is no God and there is no hope in the world and there is no love and there is no light, other than what we can self-generate, you better protect yourself. Because I know the truth about humanity. We will hurt each other. We will take advantage of each other. And you better get tough in a hurry. This picture of a hardened heart is petrified wood. You ever seen petrified wood? Right? It's a rock. But it used to be wood. And it's a heart of stone that used to be a flesh. That's where it goes to. It goes from here to here. And then it goes here. So, a disordered mind leads to a disordered heart, and then a disordered understanding of what your body is for, a body image. He says this, he says, talking about the heart of heart in verse 19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. If there's no God, and if um, there's no love, then all I can hope for is sex and stuff. We live in a world where a lot of people live that way. I've got to get mine. And if it feels good now, that's good. That's what I'm after. I've got to get mine. And if it hurts somebody else and I take it away from them, I've got to get mine. And he said this leads, and in the next section, it'll tell you where it leads to. But I just want to, I just want to point out some things about these passages. When it says they've lost all sensitivity, it means that they have so seared their conscience that their conscience doesn't even send off a warning signal when they're about to hurt someone, when they're about to do something that's harmful to themselves or to someone else. I think a worst case, someone who's completely addicted to, addicted to some awful drug and they're stealing on the street or whatever, they do not have any empathy for that other person because all they can see is their own immediate desire. That is a perfect image of the outcome that is being described here if we live our lives this way. 
Um, we don't care about, if there's no God, we don't care about each other. We don't care about anything. All we care about is more. The continual lust for more. That's all we care about. Let me give you a couple examples of that. If we get to this place, by the way, God, God allows us to do this. If you get so far along, you no longer allow your conscience to speak to you. And you've so seared it, God will quit talking to you. He'll quit sending those messages to your conscience and he'll let you rot. Not because he hates you, but in hopes that you will hit rock bottom and wake up and realize that there is more. There is more than what you're feeling in a moment, more than what you're desiring in a moment, and that there is a God and there is hope and there is a possibility for love and there is forgiveness and there are all those things, but he will let you free fall because that's what you want. Chances are you hit the bottom. You may again choose to be ignorant and ignore God and what more do you want him to do? But here's what it looks like on the way down. You begin to realize that you have no sensitivity for right and wrong, for justice, for mercy, for any of those things. How do you explain the fact that we have put hundreds of thousands in our, in our country, or hundreds, thousands I would say too, of people who are mentally ill, drug addicted, who are living in tents on sidewalks, pooping in the gutter next to them, and we think that's compassion. How do, how do we do that? How do we as a nation, how do we as Christians allow, I, I pulled in my neighbor on Christmas Day after we, did our, 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 uh, after we did Christmas Eve the night before. Christmas Day I went out to do, I came to the office to get something, going back home, and there was a woman I'd never seen before, I'd never seen before, parked right on the corner that I turn in every day. Young woman, dirty, filthy. And I, I actually pulled the car and just stopped and said, Lord, what do I need to do right now? This can't be on Christmas Day in the richest nation on earth this cannot be. But we as a society have somehow darkened our understanding to the point where, oh, that's the most loving thing you do. It is not the most loving thing. It is not loving. It is not even human what is happening. And yet we have so seared our conscience. We don't feel empathy. We don't feel, and I'm not saying all of us. I'm saying as a whole, it's what it looks like. As long as I've got your attention, let's really go somewhere here with this. Mutilating little children, underage children, because they're not sure if they're a boy or a girl, should be prosecuted. It should be outlawed. It should be prosecuted. Ah, oh, gender dysphoria. No, 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 no. Don't clap, because you think I'm making a political statement. Don't clap. I'm making a statement about what we as Christians are responsible for. Our nation's only doing this because Christians are letting, letting them get away with it. It says that their conscience is going to be seared, but is ours? Ours better not be. And we better step up and do something about some things. It's not a political thing. It is a sin. It is heinous that we would take little children who have some confusion. And maybe it's real. Maybe it's gender dysphoria. Maybe they need help. Maybe it's going to be a lifelong item. But I know this, that a six, seven-year-old child shouldn't be decided to cut off body parts. And we should not be allowing that to happen. That is sin. So you ever found yourself, how did we get here? How did we get here? And this is how we got there, right there. We decided to be ignorant about the fact that there's a God. We decided to exclude the possibility of God influencing our society in any way. And now we can't even see straight. Literally can't see straight. You ever been just sitting there going, that's what happened to me watching the news recently. How did we get here? I would, I would hate for my grandfather, good old Pentecostal preacher, to know what our country looks like right now. I would be so saddened for him to see it. 
a country that he walked and he worked, picked cotton through the depression to feed his little children. Made his way to California picking fruit. Built himself up enough that he could feed his family to see what we've become. But the reality is that's what we become. When we decide to exclude God, turn down the volume on our conscience, when we decide to do those things, horrible things happen. Crazy outcomes happen. We end up in places we never thought we would be. Now, what's interesting here is that Paul paints this picture and he, and, and he says this. He says, however, you... He's saying, this is who you used to be. These are the inclinations. This is the direction you were going. However, because you have come to believe in Jesus Christ, because you are becoming a new creation, you no longer will end up there if you will follow Jesus. Continue to follow. You don't have to end up there. I have this other, this life worthy of the calling that I'm reminding you of. See, it's something I practice in my own prayers. When I confess my sin to God, I say it in the worst possible terms. I didn't, I didn't fudge. I lied. About third day, I have to say that in a row, I start getting serious about cleaning that up. What Paul has done is he has painted this picture in some pretty harsh terms, as I just did to you. Because that's the alternative. That's the end result of the other. And because, and I'm going to show you in a minute, this lifestyle is downward spiraling. That's what he says is the alternative. We seem to think there's some, oh, it's a nice little American dream alternative. No, it's not. Being, living selfishly is living selfishly and will lead you down. But there's this other option. But you, as Christians, have the opportunity to live differently. And this is what I want to make sure we're committed to this year, is to live the life worthy of the calling. So let's go on. Let's talk about how to get our house in order. In verse 20, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. There's a whole bunch of stuff here. When you came to know Jesus, you no longer were Jew or Gentile. You are now a Jesus person, a Christian. And a Christian lives differently. And as a Christian, you must always live differently. And he says some things here. He says, the first thing he says is that you were taught, first that you met Jesus, that you learned to know Jesus, and that in knowing Jesus, you knew the truth. It's not saying in this passage, Jesus is the truth. It does say that in scripture. In this passage, it says, as you know Jesus, you will begin to realize the truth. The truth about that stuff, the truth about this stuff, the truth about him. As you know, as you follow, as you learn from Jesus, from his word and from prayer, you will become aware of truth and you will want to live differently. And then he goes on, he says this. Um, he says, you were taught, and this is what I'm going to do today. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. And, and so here's what's interesting. Well, I wasn't that bad. You were on your way. I don't know how far you'd get in your 80 years on this earth, but you were moving that direction. So take off your old self. Take off your, so a few, a couple of years ago, I guess it was, we were up on a ranch in Northern California, our family was, and we were helping clear a path through these kind of woods, and uh, it was winter, and so we didn't see the leaves, but it turned out that what we were cutting with, without gloves on and, and so on was uh, poison oak. And we're cutting with a chainsaw. And so it's just going everywhere. And, uh, and so, uh, let's just put it this way. I ended up with 
such a bad case that when I went to find a dermatologist, they stripped me down in my underwear, stood me up against the wall, and invited the other doctors to come in and see it. You're not going to believe this. And, and they were, honestly, they were taking pictures. So in some doctor's office, there's some picture, look at this idiot. But anyway, and so, so we finally got, I mean, it was bad. It was awful. I was, you know, I was, I was getting chills. I was, it was terrible. And, uh, and Matt, my son-in-law, um, he kind of, he didn't have as bad as me, but he had a pretty good case. And he got cleared up a lot quicker than I did. But, but about every, every uh, five or six weeks, he would get, start itching again. And we're like, what is that? Some, some, it keeps popping up. It must be something under the skin or something. You know, we're, we don't know. And, and here's what we found out. that The pants he was wearing that day, he kept wearing them. <laughs> now, I don't know if you know, you know but the, but the, the stuff, the, 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 the chemical in them gets on your clothes. You've got to throw them away. So here's Matt popping up every six weeks or so going, I don't know what's going on, but I think it's back and he's doing this stuff. Throw away the poison pants, you idiot. This, I'll buy you a new pair. You're nuts. The picture here is, you've got poison pants. Don't go back to them. They're not good for you. They're not helpful to you. Don't even try them on to see if they still fit. Don't eat, just burn them. Be done with them. You don't need them anymore. You say, well, yeah. well, let's just talk about some of the poison in those pants. Bitterness, anger, greed, lust. I just, I just want to go back and have a little bit of lust. Just to, I, just want to, I just want to wear my lust t-shirt for a couple hours. That's poison, man. Why do you want to do that? Paul is saying, I just, I just painted the worst picture of what used to be. And now you want to go back and be that again for a little while? What are you thinking? Don't do that. It goes on. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Two really important words there. Here's the first one. Being corrupted. If you choose not to live life in relationship with and according to God's plan, it is a, this, this word corrupted is present continuous tense. In other words, every minute you spend in this downward spiral, you're being corrupted. You're being degraded. You are moving downward, just like a, an addict moving toward deeper and deeper addiction. That is what this picture is here. Get rid of it. And then it goes on. It said, deceitful desires. It's not that you don't desire those things. You absolutely desire those things. You want the lust. You want the heroin. You want the whatever it is. It's not the deceit about your desire. The deceit is what the desire is going to get you. If you really understood, it's lying to you. If I could just have an hour of lust, I'd be so much better. No, that's stupid. That's ignorant. Well, if I could just do a little bit of bitterness, I'd just feel good about it. What? The deceit is that somehow that, that desire that I'm giving into is going to add to anything good in my life. That's the deceit. The desire is lying to you about the outcomes. So no, it's a deceit. That is not where you want to be. And then he goes on and he says this. Um, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Begin to think differently about the world. Remember that mind thing. That's where it started up here. Begin to think differently about these things. And to put on a new self. By the way, put on a new self. Present continuous tense. Just like this was a present continuous tense, spiraling down. This one is a present continuous tense in which God creates you recreate you more and more like Jesus. 
And so the more time you spend on the things of God, the more time you spend in a relationship with God, the more time you spend over here, the more you become like Jesus to the point where it says at the end of this passage, to the point where to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Over here, I love what is right. I, I am in right relationship with God. I not only want what is right, I insist in my life to have right right relationship with God, right relationship with others. I won't stand for less as, as much as up to me. And holiness, which is without contamination. That's what the word holiness means. So here I am. I have a right relationship with God, not contaminated by any of the, not even a pair of socks. I am in right relationship with God. I'm becoming more like Jesus. I want what is right. Why do you think I don't cheat on my wife? A, she'd kill me. You're right. B, I don't ever want to hurt her. I don't ever want to hurt her. I don't ever want to see that look on her face or my children's face or my grandchildren's face. As we become more in love with Jesus, what is not right is unappealing. And and that's why we need to spend time with Jesus every day. Because old thoughts, false thinking can creep in and tell yeah, it's okay, it's good. No, but it's I am in relationship with Jesus and I'm enjoying this relationship and I'm confessing the truth about me every day and I'm accepting the truth about him every day, which is forgiveness and love and all the things I want and peace and joy and all this stuff. As all of that is happening, I'm living in this thing and I'm, I'm with God's help trying to live that life that is worthy of the calling. I don't need any of that. I don't want any of that because I never want to bring pain over here to the people I love or the God I love. So, I, wonder, I feel strongly about this stuff. Can you, you notice that? I want to do something this year. Living here makes you blessable. Living here, I have a chance of becoming who God created me to be and having the impact he intended for me in the world. Living over here, I can do nothing but bring destruction. Honest to goodness, because it's just based on selfishness. I want to live over here in order to live over here, let's call this being blessable. In order to live over here, I need to put all that behind. And so today, I want us to take time to put all that behind. Because God doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't work when you come to God and say, I want to live here. And he goes, well, you got it in your pocket. Oh, that's not important. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. No, I'm worried about that. Well, what do you got in your heart? Oh, it's just a little bitterness. Don't worry about it. I can still live over here. No, you can't. There's a point where we have to come to a place where you say, I'm putting all of it behind, all of it. And I'm repenting, and I'm going to live over here where I can be blessable. Today, I want to give you an opportunity to be blessable. Some of you guys, you discuss, I, I repent every day. I confess to God every day. It's a normal part of my deal. And I usually have something to repent of, because I'm that guy. Today, I want us to repent and be clean before God. And don't leave during this or after this. The next thing coming after this is really cool. So I'm going to ask us, I'm going to ask Amy to come up and, and I'm going to ask her to sing a song. I don't want you to sing along with the song. Don't even want you to listen to the song necessarily. I want you to repent. I want you to be free and clean for the rest of this year to be blessed by God, to receive what God wants to give you. And so I want you to just get some time with God during the songs, like two minutes. I just want you to get some time with God and say, okay, here's this thing. Here's this thing. It might even be doubt. It might even be questions. It may be something you know you've been struggling with. You need to fix it. You need to stop it. You need to get some help and deal with it. It might be an attitude you've been carrying. It might be insecurity. I don't care what it is. Give it to God and receive his forgiveness, his healing, and his hope. Could you do that? Yeah, you're not so sure yet. Okay, so let's make this real.
here's how I'm going to do it. You don't have to. If you can't or you don't want to, it's okay. But um, I'm going to kneel right here during this song. Not because I'm better than you, because I need to remember that I need to be humble. Remember the first thing we read? We need to be humble. In order to receive forgiveness, to receive what God has for me, I need to be humble. And so for me, kneeling is one way I say, God, you're great. I'm not. God, you've got the answers. I don't. God, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. And I'm going to kneel here before you. And so during this song, I'm going to kneel. I'm just going to talk to God. And I invite you to, whether it's sitting or kneeling, whatever you choose to do, for the next two minutes to be serious so that you can enter this year free and clean and blessable. Will you be willing to do that with me? All right.
Some of you Catholics had flashbacks there for a minute. It's all right, I'm a Pentecostal. I had a few flashbacks myself. Um, Normally I'd move right on to the next thing, but I want to take a minute here. I just felt impressed during that time. This could be an eternal moment for somebody here today. You may be sitting here, you don't like what I said. You don't like the way I said it. You may not even like me. But your eternity is at stake. And if you'll not get distracted by who was presenting the message or even how it was presented, but if you could realize that God has a better plan for your life. And if you were to be really honest about yourself, you know you're in a downward spiral. You have no hope. You have no future. You're trying to muscle your way through it, whistling in the dark, hoping it's going to get better. I, I just pray that you would hear that there's a different kind of life that the Apostle Paul wanted for believers, that Jesus died that you could have, that is available, and all you got to do is say, I'm sorry, and to turn back. And I just had this impression that somebody needed to hear that today. Don't get hung up on me and whatever silliness I have said or whatever. Hear from God that he loves you more than you can imagine. And that this could be the greatest year of your life starting today because you're reconciled with the one who created you and the one who loves you. So my challenge to you is don't leave here today without saying a prayer. Lord, help me. If you're there, if you're real, come and forgive me. Start me on that upward journey and stop this downward path. And he will meet you there. He will change your life and give you heaven forever. It's a guarantee, not from me, from him in his word. So today, I just encourage you to take that step if that's you. For the rest of us, there's one more thing I want to do, and it's about, I don't know, three or four minutes. And I'm going to ask you not to leave because you've got no place more important to be. And I'm just telling you don't because we want to give you a gift. We, I'm going to ask the singers to come out and be ready. And I was going to just say it, but it sounds better coming from them. And this is a blessing. We'd like to give you a blessing. So I'd like you to stand, and I'd like, to hold your, I'd like you to hold your hands out like this. We just prayed a prayer that cleans you up and clears you out to be blessable. So now we want to bless you. We're going to pray that God will bless you. And the reason I'm having you hold your hands is because sometimes, again, we need a physical action to remind us of what we're doing. And in these moments, here's what I'm going to ask. The words of the song, don't sing along. It's not for you to sing. It's for them to sing. And as they say those, sing those words, receive them. Believe them. Believe that God wants to do that in your life. In addition to receive the words that we're going to be sharing with you, I want you to receive whatever else God might have for you. In this moment, God might drop something in your life, something like for the very first time, a complete sense of forgiveness. For the first time in a long time, a sense of peace. Maybe he'll drop an idea in your mind that you need to go tackle and and you need to do it and it's just the best thing that that you've heard in a long time. Or maybe he's going to drop an assignment. Maybe a person will come to your mind that you need to go love on in a way that could change their life. We've asked to be blessable. Let's be blessable. So please stay for the next few minutes as they sing this blessing over us. Let's receive it.
can you just do me a favor? Can you just lift up that, that very simple word? Can you say amen? There's a relevance that we need to carry with us to that simple word. Let your life be an amen to the blessing that God has over you. It, the translation of amen is, it is so, or I believe it is so. Can you just turn to someone next to you and just declare that over there, 2023? Can you say, it is so? And then can you turn to the other person and say, amen? See, the important thing is that we carry that amen into the world around us because it needs an amen. We are so glad that we can just have this time together. We ask that you go with the blessing of God. We'll see you guys next week. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we also have live services out in our West Auditorium on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings. Or you can always join us live online at seacoastgrace.org or on our YouTube and Facebook pages to hear these messages in real time.